Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined today by Heidi White and Adam Andrews. Heidi, Adam, welcome back to the show. How's it going? Thanks, David. It's going well. Thanks, David. Good to be here. So, Adam, you are um, you are you said you're recording remotely. So, you're you're in like Hillsdale, right? You're in Hillsdale, Michigan. I'm in Hillsdale, Michigan, watching my daughter Molly Kate graduate from college. Oh, oh nice. congratulations to Molly Thank Kate! You. That's a big yeah, deal. It's a big deal. Quite an accomplishment. <laughs> yep, she's pretty proud. You're watching that as you listen. I mean, as you discuss. Oh no, 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 it's this weekend. I'm just oh. in town. We um, we're we're longtime <laughs> Hillsdale parents, and we have yeah. the habit of showing up too early and staying too late. <laughs> Sounds perfect. I do that when I go out to North Carolina. Many years. Yeah, we always stay until they until the students look at us and say, "Why are you still here?" <laughs> <laughs> Looking for a job. <laughs> yeah, just right. <laughs> Well, so that explains why Adam is recording remotely. And um, Heidi, what's up in your world? Oh, not much. I'm heading out your way tomorrow for the weekend for the regional conference. I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, So we are here to discuss Little Bridges. We're here to discuss the final chapters of Little Bridges. Next week, we will, as is our custom, we will be answering your questions, your listener questions. So be sure to send us your questions if you'd like. We, we will um, post a feed or thread, I guess would be the word, on the Facebook group and you can uh, post them there uh, in the comments on that thread. In fact, Heidi, I'm going to task you to do that. So I've officially oh, delegated. <laughs> wow. I'll try to live up to your this responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. If you can't live up to that, then we might need to rethink some things. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> And then, so post them there. You can always post them on the Instagram page as well, or you can email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. We will get to as many as we can uh, per usual. I'm sure there will be many um, difficult, challenging, and what's another word for difficult and challenging, guys? Um, There'll be plenty of wonderful questions, I'm sure, that will give (laughs) us much to think about. Before we get into this, uh, this episode, though, before we dive into these chapters, I just want to remind you what our friends over at Classical U. If you are a busy school or homeschool educator who is enthused about the tradition of classical education, um, who may wish that you had been classically trained yourself, then Classical U was created by Classical Academic Press with you in mind. They're confident that this resource will inspire educators in school, homeschool, and co-ops to dig deep into the richness of learning, no matter where you find yourself on your journey in classical education. You can discover over 35 self-paced courses with new content regularly added, as well as community, forums, and recently added accreditation through ACSI. You can begin your journey at classicalu.com and Close Freeze listeners can try Classical you free through June 29th. All you have to do is head over to classicalu.com slash code and then enter the code Circe Podcast at checkout. So that code would be C-I-R-C-E-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. That's all one word at classicalu.com slash code. And again, you can check it out for free through June 29th. Uh, there's lots of great content over there. Um, hope you will check them out. And uh, we are grateful to them for partnering with us and helping make this show possible this month during the month of May. So, all right, let's talk. Let's talk Little Bridges. I don't want to keep you too long, Adam. I know you are, you have, um, you're celebrating. So, you know. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm glad to be here. Um, here's my, uh, here's my question that I was thinking about. Lots of things sprung to mind as a kind of a starting question for, for these final chapters. There's, um, you know, there's more going on here as far as Ralph Moody's journey towards 
not just manhood, but sort of cowboyhood. <laughs> you know, you get the, he learns how to shoot a gun. He does a rodeo, you know, all these different sort of uh, archetypal mythological elements of being a cowboy uh, come into play, you know, bit by bit, as we discussed last week, and it kind of builds to the rodeos and the, cow- and the, uh, the gunfighting um, and even getting shot at. But in the end, here's the question that I tentatively, hesitantly decided to start with. Adam, I'm going to ask this to you first. Okay. Is Little Britches a tragedy? Is Little Britches a tragedy? Well, obviously that begs the question of the definition you're using for the term, right? Mm -hmm. So let me answer your question with a question of my own. (laughs) Very Socratic. What do you mean by tragedy? What do you mean by tragedy? Well, I would say that a tragedy is a drama in which a... um, a flaw on the part of the protagonist uh, proves to be his undoing in the end. Uh, that is, and the flaw is, is of such a human character and a universal character that the witnessing of the flaw and, its, and the resultant destruction has some sort of a cathartic effect on the audience. Um, that's what I would, that's I think what's generally meant by tragedy at least in terms of drama and and narrative art and if if you if we go along with that definition then the question as it applies to little britches is the kind of a thought-provoking one and i don't know how i'd answer that right away but maybe maybe first (laughs) the first question is do you guys go along with me on that general definition of tragedy Heidi, would you like to take issue with anything in his definition of tragedy? I I take no issue i mean that's the classic aristotelian definition of tragedy uh going all the way back but um, I I think that right the the thing that I would add then is that sometimes tragedy has a fate or um, you know not not necessarily always coming from the tragic flaw and some Shakespearean tragedies uh, and Greek tragedies have this element of of doom and fate also added into that there's nothing that the characters can do to escape what's coming. Um, oh yeah, right. I agree. But also, but to, to, to bolster what Adam's saying in a true tragedy, the arc of the story is always converging towards the tragic action. And, and so in this particular story, I'd say, no, it's probably not a, a tragedy in the classical sense of as contain elements of tragedy, but it has a, a triumphant, just ending. Yeah. Um, with with I mean, with that's sad. I mean, very sad. It's a, it's it's a tragic loss that that characterizes the end of this book. But I wouldn't say it's a tragedy in the sense of kind of the classical of it. No, that's an interesting. To, um, I think I agree with you, Heidi. That the the resolution that we get in a in a real tragedy is the regu- resolution of catharsis. Mm-hmm. So we see. That the um, that there's a horrible ending, that there's some sort of I like you're injecting the idea of fate or destiny into into it as a as an uh, another source of the problem, and and we have a release in the conclusion of a tragedy that comes from us saying, oh yes, I too am bound by that destiny, or I too am subject to that flaw, mm-hmm. and so I identify with the tragic hero, and I can see my own risk of destruction in his destruction. And there's some sort of catharsis, some sort of um, fellowship of suffering that I experience as a viewer or a reader. And 
if, if that's what we're, if that's the resolution that we get in a tragedy, I think the resolution that we get in a story like this is much different because, mm-hmm. because we see um, not the, not the destruction of the hero, but we see his, uh, his transformation or his coming of age. Mm-hmm. And we, we identify with him and we, we, we see, ah, there, there I go as well in my humanness, but it's an uplifting thing. It's a, despite the fact that life is hard, boys become men. And that's kind of right. glorious. That's kind of glorious, actually. Hmm. Right. It's funny that you, Heidi, that you mentioned fate. Although mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't say that it's funny given the context. Um, but <laughs> but I because fate that the I don't know that I was thinking of that word, but there was the word that I had in my head was sort of. <laughs> <coughs> Like I said, I shouldn't have said funny about fate. But <laughs> so, <laughs> in the event Logan decides to leave this in, I'll just keep talking. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so um, I was thinking about this idea of foreboding that this story, in many ways, from the beginning, is leading. It kind of makes inevitable the idea that the father's something's going to happen to the father, right? Even when it seems like he's doing well, the the there's this hovering over the story is the idea that he's got a problem, you know, that he, and and in the end, uh, Ralph Moody's, you know, true coming of age is going to be tied to whatever happens to his father, Uh, whether that means that he dies or not, you know, that isn't clear throughout the whole book, but, but from the very beginning, the whole, the whole setup, the whole premise of the book is they have to go somewhere because he is ill and that, and regularly he either, is in bed again or something's happening or, or there's, a, there's always this, this sense that Ralph's kind of looking at his father to make sure he's okay. You know, uh-huh. every other chapter, it seems like he's looking to see if he's okay. And so there, there was this sort of sense of foreboding or fate that was kind of hovering over the story. And it got me thinking about, you know, where, where, how do we categorize a story like this where, you know, that sense of foreboding really is there. Um, but maybe in a true classical sense, based on the definitions, the two of you are, getting at or engaging with um, maybe it's not truly a tragedy, but when you look at a story like this, it does have this element of fate and it does have this foreboding and it does lead to a, the tragic demise of a beloved character. Where, how do you categorize something like this? I mean, we can look at the genres, um, but when it comes to tragedies and comedies and all these different things, my mind instinctively wants to ask that kind of question. Like what's the, what's the sort of tradition that this sort of story should fall into uh, given the triumphant, but tragic, you know, uh, sort of the, the sort of coalescing of tragic elements and triumphant elements at the same time. Does So it's for me in, in my mind, my instinct is to kind of make that a dilemma. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, I mean, I think a better question than is this a tragedy is, is this a comedy? Hmm. Huh. That might be worth thinking about. I mean, uh, because the, the, the presence of, uh, of the presence of trouble mm-hmm. and, and reversal and even death mm-hmm. do not disqualify a story from, from being a comedy in the, in the, you know, the sense of say Dante's great divine comedy, which is filled mm-hmm. with death and destruction, but hmm. because of the fact that it, that it, chronicles the progress of a protagonist from ignorance to knowledge, from a state of sin to a state of grace. You know, all the, the general arc of the story is from, from bad to good, from bondage to freedom. This story has some of those elements in it, right? From childhood to manhood, from ignorance to experience, from darkness to light in some ways. I mean, I think there are some definitely some 
uplifting, upward pointing arcs in this story that are that are significant. Hmm. Heidi, you were going to respond, I think, as well. Yeah, I I completely agree with Adam, and and I would add also there is an element of romance to this book too, in the traditional sense of the romance, the quest, the heroic quest, the 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 hero moving from ignorance to knowledge, and all the things that that Adam said. Um, that ends with the fulfillment of the heroic journey. I think you can argue that case, in which case this is a much more complex work than it looks appears at first glance, right? A young man learning how to be a cowboy. You know, when, when you start to kind of, as you said, David, you're kind of drawn to this idea of categorizing. It does in some ways defy all of those neatly arranged categories, which makes it a pretty complex and nuanced work. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's, um, there's good argument for it being a. Well, I mean, I, I, I guess maybe very informally, very casually, sure. I would say it's uplifting. Mm-hmm. Right. We read the story at the end, and we go, "Yeah." The last line, you know, she looked at me and nodded, and I became a man. You kind of want to cheer there at the end, right? Right. Yeah. In a different way than you than than uh, your reaction at the end of Hamlet, for example, is not <laughs> to cheer, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Right. Although there's no weddings. We need a wedding. <laughs> well, he's 11. Come on. Give him time. <laughs> Give him two years. Two, two, year, two years to get all set up on his own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Things are happening fast in that day and age, right? <laughs> well, you're 11 now. I'm not going to spank you anymore. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You can make your own living. Well, and you and Adam, better find a wife. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, your question about comedy is, it, you know, the Shakespearean comedies, the comedy always ends with the creation of a new society, right? The, the wedding is the sacramental image that is you know, kind of uh, the mirror of the fact that something new has been made. Yeah, it's an incarnation of it. Yeah, through the passing away of the old. And so in the, in this case, that's certainly true with this this famous young boy stepping into his destiny as the man of the family, which I understand is the name of the second book, but I haven't read it. Yeah, that's um, I like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I I mean, I I wouldn't say it has a comic ending, but it does have a redemptive ending. And in that way, it's more like a comedy than a tragedy. Hmm. Yeah. I like the what you're saying about this idea of um new communities kind of being created. I, whatever mm-hmm. word, yeah, whatever word you used. I mean, that's you know, Romeo and Juliet is a tragedy ultimately because the, I mean, do they die? Yeah. But there's also this sort of dissolution that's happening. The, the, the potential for unity is sort of dissolves. So, I mean, right. there's a lot of debate over what, how exactly to read Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> but yes. I, so I don't know why I brought that up, <clears throat> but I do <laughs> like that. We're ta- all excited. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but like when you look at like much to do about nothing or some, something like that, you have throughout the whole book, the whole play is this tension of of the potent the potential for these families to be torn apart, both the relationship between families, but also within a single family. And what when they are when when at the end of the play you have them, spoiler alert, having some sort of you know the weddings resulting in a unity between those things. That's the catharsis is not that Benedict, Benedict and Beatrice fall in love and get married. It's that there is unity at the end. Right. And right. I, so, you know, that's really interesting when you think about it in this way, because yeah, there's this, what could have happened, the, the final scenes of the book are, the, the, the ultimate question is, 
are they going to be broken apart after he dies, the father dies? And they are for a short time. Like you almost yeah. could have spent, you know, if it was a Dickens novel, we would have spent a hundred pages in that part of their life. Right. right. Um, and maybe, maybe it would have been better for that. I don't know. Um, but you know, the siblings are all split apart. The mother has to go off to be healed and all that. But then in the end, you know, so that there is this tension that gets ratcheted up about what's going to happen to all of them. But in the end, they're unified. And he is the, 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 so at the end of the book, the, the, um, part of the catharsis is that he becomes a unifying principle. Yes. Like Ralph himself becomes the thing that's going to ostensibly hold them together and maintain the unity that, and keep them from being broken apart because then they got it. And we as readers, as well as the characters got a taste of that being broken apart for a little while. Right. Right. Mm. Adam, I think you were going to say something there. No, I, I think there's, uh, that, that's all contained in that last, in that last phrase, I became a man. And, uh, the author is importing in, in that little phrase, everything that we instinctively understand by the coming of age story. I became a man uh, implies that I then took up my father's place as head of the family and began to provide the unifying force that he had provided. And that causes us to look back over the whole story at all of the things that Ralph learns and to see those things as preparation for him doing what he will now begin to do in the future of the story. Uh, so there's a kind of a unifying, he, he becomes a unifying force, I think mm-hmm. in that, in that last phrase, just like you were, just like you were saying. Right. Well, and I think that that whole sentence is really, really important too, that it is because mother nods at him that night. She nodded to me and I became a man. And you see in this last chapters, the, I, I don't want to say redemption, but the, the full glory of the mother of mother here, that she is, it, she, her love and nurturing and care is catalyzing force then for him to step mm-hmm. into this place, right? Every she gathers around the table, she prepares the food, she provides the culture of the family, and then she nods at him to take his place. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. You know, I was yeah. thinking about, the editor in me was thinking about that line and the way it's punctuated mm-hmm. because some editors would say, I mean... You don't, need, you don't the comma. need the comma there, but I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I actually, I love that that's there because it, Me too. there's, there's this pause, like the way you have to read it, the way your eye works on that sentence. I, I really like that. It makes you stop at that moment. And, and, you know, like he might, uh, he might've taken a moment to realize what was happening when his mother nodded at him, that, that, that comma there offers a moment of a very brief sort of fleeting moment, but for our brains to stop and take note of what's happening. Adam, again, I think right. we open our mouths at the same time. Like, it's hard for me to no, tell. No, not at all. I, I, we got a little bit of a delay. I'm sorry about that. No, I was, I was just listening this time. Okay, but well, don't you worry. If I have an idea, <laughs> I will pop right up. <laughs> Noted. So one thing I really like about this, this ending here is the, um, the, the note that he makes of ritual Yes. Because it says, Father had always said grace before meals, always the same 25 words, and the ritual was always the same. And then he describes mother nodding at father and passing that on. But I was struck in thinking about the book the last couple of days since I finished it, about the number of times that he sort of references ritual. That he references the time, you know, he would talk to his father at a, you know, during milking time. He and his father had this ritual 
of how he would leave to go back to the ranch he was working at. And the father would come out to the gate and say, so long, partner. And there's all these different rituals that become parts of their sort of habit of being, if you will. Mm. And part of what he's doing and part of what the mother is helping preserve is they're preserving some of those rituals. Um, mm-hmm. And part of preserving those rituals is also seems to be preserving memory as well, the memory of their father, even as they know without a doubt that things are going to change even further than they have in the most recent couple of chapters. So that, that idea of ritual was really striking to me. Yep, I agree. Well, and I think he's getting, again, that's that idea of the creation of a new society upon kind of the passing of the old, which fathers often represent that either as holders of the traditions of the past or else kind of the the blocks to the future. And in this case, of course, the father is, is portrayed, you know, through in the idealized memory of his son. And we've talked about that a lot in these podcasts. So he doesn't represent an obstacle. He's kind of that passing on, like the father passing on the tradition to the son and the son upholds that tradition and those rituals and that the role of the mother and the preservation and the training of the children. Uh, and I love the, disc- I love to this to your point, David, I love the description of mother telling all of the children what to do to get the meal ready. Mm. Muriel, you go here, you go, like, I loved that. And they all prepare the meal next to her bed. I just think that like this whole last part is just this creation of a a new world that is going to be dedicated to the preservation of the old within a new and redemptive context. Um, So I really love what you said about ritual. I think that's really important to this, the the redemptive ending of this, because what it could have gone a different way. It could have just gone into chaos and depression and, um, but, but mother draws them all together and recreates what has been before in a new way. Do you, do you, we talked about this idea of catharsis. I think Adam, you brought this up a couple of times. Um, do you f- find, I mean, does, does the ending being what it was, is it enough to, you know, uh, offer you cathartic satisfaction? Is that the way of putting it? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, the, um, the conclusion of the, of the water rights story, uh, is I think really well placed. I remember how they there was the the hints of that upcoming problem when uh, Father is talking to Fred Altland early along, and he says, "What are you trying to say to me, Fred? Haven't I got enough water?" And then and then they have the the early sessions where they go out at night and they're they're physically fighting, having brawls to protect their water. Yeah. And then and then in the in the kind of the middle of the story, uh, Father comes up with this great way to get everyone to agree to share and he invents a new technology to portion out the water that brings everybody to the bargaining table. And so there's great hope in that. And then here at the end, in the last chapters, we find that, that the guys who are the haves as opposed to the have nots are going to run roughshod over, over the others and actually come to violence and they're shooting. And so father learns how to shoot and actually goes out and participates in presumably in gunfights over the water and loses that battle. And then he turns to Ralph and says, let's face facts. We're not going to make it. We, um, we don't, the, the fates are against us. And, and it's, he doesn't say it that way, but it's a little bit yeah. like, um, you know, it recalls the, the ancient classical versions of the fates being arrayed against the hero. 
And what are you going to do? You fight and then you succumb. That's the way it goes. And I think yeah, that's... You recognize when you're beat. Yeah, exactly. You recognize when you're beat and you, you move to Littleton and, and build houses instead. And I think it was, it's a little, it's, there's a catharsis in realizing that that is the way of the world. And we're, we don't have a little, um, uh, a little Pollyanna hero story here where my father was so great, he overcame all obstacles <laughs> and we, we throve and succeeded. Instead, you have the, um, the vicissitudes of life, uh, you know, shouldering their way in and knocking us all down together. Yeah. And there's, there's a good in seeing that in the same way that, that the ancient tragedies provide a, a catharsis. So the long, long answer to your question is, yeah, I do. Absolutely. <laughs> I was thinking about it in relation to the, uh, when he finds out that his father dies, it all happens so fast. And in some ways it's sort of, you know, you, you, I, you, I found myself yelling at the doctor, right? Yeah. Like, Let him see his kids, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so it happened so fast. And, and, and part of me thinks, does God, that has to have really happened that way. Like that mm-hmm. doesn't, it would be such a, you know, I mean, I mean, maybe he just really wanted it to feel urgent and quick. Uh, so yeah. he wrote it that way. But that, that feels like it had to have been the way it really happened in his life because there really is this lack of catharsis. He doesn't get that moment with his father. He, he hears about, he doesn't even, you know, we, we, he doesn't give us a scene where his mother talks to him about his father dying or whatever. It's he, he overhears it in the other room, right? Yeah, right. brain sort of shuts off, and so there's no grieving process really that that we're tuned into that that we're given that, and in a sense, then we are sort of deprived of that as well as readers. Um, it just sort yeah, of happens fast, right. and then you're left out in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I also think I agree with that. It does. I th- I thought this whole last part was crafted so beautifully and and realistically. This would be the way a child would remember, but upheld the whole time by this, by everything that has come, that has, I I think one of the, I'm I'm kind of thinking through this, so I'm talking slowly because I'm thinking through this thought for the first time right now, that so many coming of age novels kind of have this, or or childhood reminiscence or whatever, kind of have this sense of the trauma happened and I had to fight my way through it without any resources. I was kind of shoved out into the world on my own. But I don't have that sense in this novel. I have the sense of everything that has gone before from the death of the horse and the watching Sky trains and how hard it was for that horse and how hurtful it was for Ralph to see Sky High be trained. But then at the end, he, he's like, this is the way to train a horse, you throw him into difficulty and he has to figure it out, right? Like, and, and the conversations with his father, the questions of his integrity, all of these things um, that have gone before that, that have trained him, right, for such a time as this. So that even though the trauma has happened, the worst has happened, they've lost their ranch and they've lost their father, that this, this young man is, the lessons of his life have been sufficient for this moment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really lovely and actually really rare in a book like this. And I, I just found myself falling in love with the book way more at the end than I did at, from the beginning, kind of slipping back through and, and thinking, wow, all of these things have led this boy to be able to bear up under the weight of his suffering right now. Mm. And, and I think that's so much of, 
some of what he's getting at in the afterward, even though he doesn't explicitly say that, when he remembers his childhood so fondly and says it was a happy childhood. Because even though he went through this valley of the shadow of death, like what he has, what has, the things that have come before have been sufficient for that. That's grace. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking. I know. I'm like, and that's all I have to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm reading that. uh, I'm reading the end of his afterward again. Mm -hmm. I forgot about his afterward. I forgot to review it. I was having fun reliving the happiest childhood a boy ever had. Oh, yes. Cause we, and we started talking about that last week. Right. Um, it, 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 I got to thinking about, you know, what do we think he means by happiness? Because it sounds, on the surface, it sounds crazy, right? That a boy's childhood when his father dies when he's 11 it could, is the happiest childhood a boy ever had. Except unless you mean that his childhood ended then. Right, right. So, you know, I, I wonder if that's what he's getting at, that until that moment, he had the happiest childhood a boy ever had, and his childhood was over, and so things changed then, or if, or if he meant that that childhood in some, you know, was able to go on, and I, I, it got me thinking, you know, well, how is he, how would you say that the author of this book, based on the stories he's telling here, what is happiness to this? Right. To, to, what does it seem like as happiness to Ralph Moody? Because in the afterward, he's talking about making good citizens and working hard and the value of, you know, getting kicked in the face by a horse and stuff like that. Well, um, I, I, I think that, first of all, the, I think his comments about the happiest childhood a boy ever had, I think the structure of the story answers the question about which part of his life he considers his childhood and whether or not it extended. Yeah. Because I think he's, he's very explicitly talking about his childhood that ends with the last sentence of the, of right. the novel. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he could have just as easily have said, my mother nodded to me and my childhood was officially over. Right. And, and I, he, so, so he's talking about the experiences up until the point when he starts saying grace over dinner. And so if you look back at that childhood, then I think a definition of happiness, given his the comments in the afterward kind of leaps off the page. It's a, it's a, uh, a childhood where, a strong fatherly influence guides you through the ups and downs and varied experiences of life towards uh, strong character. I, mean, right. I think that's what some, that's something like what he would probably say is, is the definition of a happy childhood. I agree. Well, and the tone of that afterward is not negative. This is to, to your point. It's right. not like I had this happy childhood and then my father died and the rest of my life was ruined and sad and I became a drug addict and then ever, you know, like it didn't, he's, there's no sense of spiraling out of control and losing his faith and his character and his integrity upon this traumatic event, which that frankly is kind of the trajectory of a lot of modern childhood memoirs. Right. I have my, my child was okay. And then I went through some horrible thing and then I just went off the deep end. And that is, those are the kinds of things that are published now, not this. So that, I love that. I love well, it that. it makes for his, drama. Yes. I love that. This is a better drama. That's, I think as I was reading towards the end, this, this whole last part with this dawning awareness, it becomes darker at the end of this book. Like he's this dawning awareness of sadness and violence and loss uh, and and change. He didn't get to just stay out on the ranch and, and 
horses forever with high. He had if things changed and it, but his memory of it is that's it. It all converges towards this point of making me the man that I needed to be. There's a very redemptive tone to that afterward, which mm. I liked. Yeah. And I think that gives the, uh, a kind of a sunny cast. I think I might've said this before. There's a, there's a very sunny, happy um, tone to this that, uh, that isn't dimmed. I don't think by, his father's ill health and his father's failing health and the, the violence that they suffer at the end. And then his father's death. I think that's all contextualized by this sunny um, mood and tone. Uh-huh. It reminds me actually of, I guess maybe the way I'd put it is this on the surface, there's some darkness in the end of this story, but underneath it, there is a sunny disposition and a kind of a childlike wonder and it reminds me of kind of uh, Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer in reverse, kind of a mirror huh. image of Tom Sawyer. Because in that novel, you have a, the description of a happy childhood that has a lot of those sunny elements. Boys will be boys, getting into scrapes, getting out of scrapes, learning some lessons, having larks, having wonderful adventures. And that's all on the surface. And then beneath it, there is Mark Twain's characteristic um, uh, characteristic negativity, his characteristic cynicism. There's a tone of yeah. darkness um, underneath. Right. And so, so I guess what I'd say is whereas Moody has some darkness on the surface, underneath it, there's a sunny disposition, kind of the opposite of huh. how, how Twain would do it. Yeah, he doesn't have the, you know, Twain's kind of acerbic. Yeah, uh-huh. I would say acerbic and, and cynical and sad. Yeah. Right. In a way that yeah. Moody really isn't. In a sense, Moody says, my father died and... Uh, it brought my glorious, happy childhood to an end. But he doesn't right. go on and dwell on that. Right. One, go ahead, Heidi. Nope. I've oh. had, nope. <laughs> One thing that I, um, <laughs> that I was uh, thinking about is this book doesn't have that sidekick character. Huh. Did, I, did I mention this already? Like a lot of these coming of oh. age books have sort of a sidekick character. Even Tom Sawyer has like Huck Finn or Huck Finn has Jim or, you know, whatever it is. You almost always have this sort of sidekick character that balances out some kind of, you know, balances out the main character and helps us understand, you know, oftentimes they are a chance for the main character to look better than you or, you know, to look good or solve some problem or help the sidekick or whatever it is. Um, They help each other. And this book doesn't have that sort of, traditional coming of age sidekick no because it's the father in this one yeah. yeah 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 he's going he's going through the story and there is a central relationship in the story but it's not buddy to buddy it's definitely son to father i think always, no matter what whether he's hanging out with two dog or whether he's hanging out with high the cowpoke yep. it always comes back around and his his doings with those people are are ratified or or you know, evaluated by his discussions with his dad mm. And he uh, and everything. He kind of like looks at all those people in in light of his father. Yeah. There's this constant, sort of constant comparison, right? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, and in some ways, he's the sidekick, right? He's the partner. He's he's always striving to be worthy of that particular role in his father's life. Yeah, and then in the end, of course, they become real partners. Right. Right. But his father makes that sort of, he says it out loud at a certain point. Right. Which the repetition then of that so long partner, so long 
a partner, so long partner that sticks in his mind after he finds out his father is dead. What you're saying makes that all the more poignant, right? He isn't just saying goodbye to his father. He's saying goodbye to their partnership, to the relationship as its own identity. Right now he is entirely on his own as a man. Yeah. Yeah. And what, and one of the things that makes it tragic or whatever word you want to use is he talks about how they're going to build houses together, right? It's going to be Ralph Moody and son or whatever. And uh, one of the tragic things is, as with any story like this, real or imagined, is the is the loss of what could be, the loss of yes. what you always imagined. And, you know, that sort of, for me, the loss of possibility, you know, the possibility that was sort of inherent in, the, in that partnership. Um, the timing of that too, you know, it all sort of falls apart, right? As it's just getting started. And that's right. kind of haunting for, you know, to me. Right. Um, I don't know if that's because, you know, of where I am as as, as a parent and having little kids and... And a, you know, and a son, right? Well, oh, well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, well, but it's a little different. Like, it, just the idea of, you know, when your kids are... Well, for me, one of my, you know, chief anxieties, I suppose, is something happening to me and and not being that I'd be gone. I mean, that would suck, but also (laughs) like being more about like what, what doesn't, what's not possible or what things that, you know, you imagine about building relationships with your kids or whatever. If you, if something happens to you and they're young that, you know, so many of those things kind of go away. And so, um, trying to sort of express, I don't know how you express uh, anxieties that you haven't thought about expressing on a, in a public forum and then immediately start trying to express them without any thought beforehand. Uh, well, but I think people I, know what I'm saying. I make it a point never to do that. <laughs> Good plan. Experience. I need. <laughs> it's the whole question. Like that is the question is fathers and sons. Like that's, that's just so fundamental to human life. And I, I, I think about Telemachus in book one, when he says, does any man really know him? know their father does any man really know his father that is i think a profoundly human and fundamental question and both of you and again i am not asking you to talk about this on the air but both of you are also (laughs) thought you are you are fathers and sons working with fathers and sons on a daily basis this is it's intergenerational what you what you both do in life and Hmm. so these are i mean whether they're on the surface awareness or underneath, this this book addresses some of those fundamental questions of what does it mean to be a father and a son? What does it mean to be your own man? All of those things are kind of explored um, and brought to the surface throughout this novel. It's, it's funny that you mentioned this because I was thinking that in some ways, um, you know, it's not a, um, it's not an overly, you know, sentimental book, but it's also right. not like, you know, sort of Pollyanna story as, as Adam mentioned, but in some ways it doesn't, you know, we never, they never do run into the sort of, I don't know, basic conflicts that they would run into if they were a father and son as a partnership. Right. I was thinking right. about that. I was like, well, I guess, I guess that, you know, that's not a part of the story and I'm not, you know, not the, right. the good thing. I was, I, it just kind of struck me. I mean, some days I'd like to just trade places with Ian and then I'll work with Adam and Ian can work with my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it would be a different dynamic. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, David. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was thinking that that um, Ralph Moody 
actually sidesteps a lot of that yeah. in his uh-huh. last chapter. And I wonder if it's intentional. I mean, I mean, I wonder if it's integral to the arc of his story or the tone of his story, because he doesn't say mom nodded to me and I became a man and lo, all of the things we'd planned evaporated into the mists of destiny or, and lo, all of our, all of our hopes and dreams came crashing down and I had to figure out a way to soldier on. There's a, there's a a sense of an optimistic statement at the end. I became a man because of the tone of the novel leading up to that point, you hear him say, she nodded to me and I became a man and it was great. There's an implication that this is the next step in learning what I'd learned about navigating my ship straight in, you know, taking a beating when I needed one or whatever, all the lessons that his father had taught him. There's a sense in which he says, I became a man and I applied them and here we go. And so I think that he, yeah, pushing off. Yeah. He's pushing off. Exactly. Because of the sunny tone that I've referred to a bunch of times already of this novel, that last sentence is a statement of anticipation and hope and even joy. I think. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Yes. Does that at all ring, not hollow, but incomplete for you? Or, or does it just suit, do you th- I mean, it just suits the form of what's going on here. I, I, think it's, I think it just suits the form perfectly. I think, um, you know, I don't think Moody was writing for, uh, he wasn't writing for adults, right? Yeah. So he's, he's writing for young readers. And I think, and given his stated aim, in writing, which is, as we've talked about, you know, somewhat, um, there's a social consciousness in his, in his uh, impulse to write in the first place. Hmm. I think that, that optimistic um, tone suits the form perfectly. It's funny that you mentioned this because I think that what I like about this is that it, it offers that hopefulness while kind of leaving us in this place of stasis where in some ways we know, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't come right out and say, and everything was okay because we know it's not going to be okay right. in that sense. Right. It gives, it leaves it being hopeful in the face of trial that, yep. we, that we know are coming, but it doesn't try to resolve everything. It doesn't put this nice neat bow on it. It says I'm a man and that's good or it implies that's good, but it doesn't not imply that it's also difficult. Right. Is that, if that makes sense. You yeah, know, there's I think a lot so. that's left unsaid, both um, hopeful and uh, difficult at the same time. And it mm-hmm. doesn't make, it doesn't suggest, I don't think, that the difficulty that's, you know, inevitably going to come is not also uh, sort of um, twisted up in hopefulness at the same time. You know, like the future things that are going to happen that are difficult will be entwined with hope as well. Yeah, in the same way that all of his experiences so far have been, the ones that he's related to us in yeah. all of the preceding chapters. Yeah. The, the, and even the ones that are, that are sad, the death of his horse and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. Those yeah. are mixtures of, of disaster and learning and growing. And he's, he looks back on them with, uh, with that, this, that matter-of-fact fondness that I think is really, he's really noted for. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's talk about, uh, before we go... Um, the scene in the, I think it's the third to the last chapter, maybe when he goes back to school in the town and he gets the tar, you know, gets beat, uh, beaten a little my bit. My favorite scene in American lit right there, baby. <laughs> and then the father, that's a, that's a, quite a statement. And then the father, <laughs> the father goes and, you know, seems to, um, 
Well, you know, may or may not have solved some problems. Respond in kind. And yes. but then he comes and says, sometimes you got to take a beating for doing the right thing. There's a lot of complexity and a lot of, you know, it changes a little bit there. You know, some of the things that his father's teaching him. And it's after that that his father basically says, we're partners now. Uh-huh. And... I mean, so what do you make of this scene? Um, you, Adam, like you go first just because you made a very bold proclamation there and now you have to defend it. Um, well, the reason that I love it, I don't know if it's my favorite passage in all of literature, but I love it. But on podcasts, you say bold and, you know, I say hot, bold hot, hot things on thing. podcasts. Right, That's right. right. As, as every, everyone does. It's what you do. It's like the point of having a podcast. If you're not going to say bold proclamations about American literature on this podcast, then why do we even have the dang thing? <laughs> who has ever, who has never wanted their dad to go to school and beat somebody up for him. I mean, I think it's the greatest thing ever as a dad, as a dad, when, you know, the kids are out in the world and taking their licks and getting mistreated, you want to, you want to wade in there and swing. And it's, if there was such speaking of catharsis, baby, I'll tell you what, there was such a great (laughs) feeling of, of release when the father's hands are all black and blue. And I thought that headmaster got his awesome. I loved it. So I think it was kind of a visceral uh, pleasure that I took in in that particular scene. But you, go ahead, go ahead. Well, do you, but do you think it's in? You know, one of the big question I had is: it in keeping? Is it in keeping with what the father has been teaching him all along, or is there something new that's being revealed both about the father and about things that he thinks are of virtue? Oh yeah, I don't know about that. I think maybe it was a it was a it's dramatic because it's a turning point. Because then after that, he says to Ralph. Um, essentially you're on your own now and I'm not going to spank you anymore. And implication is I'm also not going to go fight your battles for you. Uh-huh. And so that was it. That was my last, that was our last go around. And I made yeah. sure it counted. <laughs> but you can take care of yourself from now on. <laughs> yeah. 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 Honey, right. what do you think? Yeah. I, I loved that. I did think it was new though. When I read it, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guy. So, I'm like, wow, he just really <laughs> went over to the principal's house and beat <laughs> that's, that's intense. <laughs> um, which too It's a very this, direct this, way of fighting your battles, I will say. Yes. I mean it's literally fighting a battle for him. And but I think the thing that so I, I kind of paused after I read that, um, not in judgment of father, but in thinking why. Like why is this so um why was this such a turning point for Ralph and his dad? Um, other than kind of, you know, the, the, the literary need to have a kind of passing on of the torch moment before the father dies. Um, and I think the conclude you can tell me, this is speculation on my part, but I think it's because Ralph actually did the right thing here. And that the reason he got the beating was because he stood up and took responsibility. He acted like a man. Yeah. Whereas in the past, he Ralph has not always risen to the occasion of virtue. So his father saw, wow, you you stood up. You took a beating for what was right. And so, you know, that kind of made him want it. Uh, that, was that the passing of the torch moment for him? Is that what y'all are seeing in the story? I- I would sort of see it as a, as the latest in a series of them. I mean, I, I think there's sort yeah. of a, there's sort of a smooth transition of moments like that. I would include the one where he starts calling him partner for the first time. Right. Right. Uh, or the one who's, yeah, I guess that's the sort of the same scene where he says, I don't, 
I don't want to hang around with people who don't tell the truth, but if you're willing yeah. to tell the truth, I'm, then I'll be glad to go into business with you or whatever. I think it's another, it's another episode in that progression. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the, the other two that are important to me are when uh, he rides Fanny. Well, I, I'll put it harshly. He rides her to her death and the father uh-huh. shows up and he doesn't, the way he responds to him there, I think is pretty important. And then also the way that he, in, he allows him, he kind of entrusts him with the rodeo stuff. You, know, yes. you can tell the father's nervous, but he trusts oh, yeah. him and he, he's right. kind of empowering of him when he says, yep. you know, when his father doesn't express his anxiety and his fears, he kind of trusts that he's going to be able to do it. That I think is a really crucial moment in their partnership. Right. Well. well, and that's a, that's kind of a passing of the torch because of skill. Because Ralph yeah, he, was skilled enough then to do this. Yeah. Yes. But in this, in this case, it's because of Ralph's character. Because Ralph stood up and admitted that he yep. had, you know, scraped the the rocks on the ground. And he was one of the only ones that did. And so this is a moment of moral overcoming, whereas Ralph has given into temptation many times in the book. Yeah. And just a regular way a young boy does taking chocolate, you know, things that are not necessarily, <laughs> you know, like truly dastardly. But he did, he didn't rise to the occasion morally as he does in this case. Hmm. And so I think father's proud of him. Yeah. Remind me to use the word dastardly frequently when referring <laughs> to my children's behavior. Um, so Son, you, know, you have done something truly dastardly. <laughs> I think if I said that, you know, at least one of my children would probably melt and not want to speak to me for a few days, um, because because the world has quite it's got quite a sound to it. So okay, but let's go As back. I to, was saying it. I was thinking, why is this particular word coming to my head? Like, I don't know. I can't explain <laughs> well, that. The funny thing is, in my head, I was, I was finishing your sentence with the same word in my head. Um, <laughs> let's talk about the thing that he did, though. Because uh-huh. he, his father goes and beats the guy up for punishing him. Uh, when Ralph you know, admits that he did the wrong thing. And I was, I was struck by how different that seems than what he would have done in the past. Because... In you know, Ralph admits that he did the wrong thing, but it seems like in the past his father would have said, you know, even when you get punished for you, he the thing with the pheasants, for example, he says you might get punished, but you still have to admit that you you still have to admit that you did the wrong thing. But here he admits that he did the wrong right. thing as he's been taught to do, and he got the punishment. But his father beats the guy up anyway, and it seems pretty clear to some degree that what Ralph did in the first place was at least disrespectful. I don't know that he deserved a beating, but the the way. I don't you know, the degree to which the father responds in kind is is fascinating to me. I'm not saying it was right. the wrong thing to do, but it's fascinating given all the lessons and all the things that's been going on. That's why I asked if it seems like we're learning something new about the father or something new about what the father considers to be virtuous. Hmm. And so does he no, yeah. go ahead. No, I think that this is that okay, so that reframes the question for me. And I would answer it differently. I think the father is consistent here. I think that he is, what he wants for Ralph to do is just admit what he, when he does wrong. In this case, wasn't a big deal. And uh, it was so clear that he, and he was one of the only ones who did. So what he is I think the father's consistent here because what he said to Ralph all along was, I understand you're going to make mistakes. Just be honest and own up. Just take responsibility for yourself as a man. 
regardless of what other people do and regardless of the consequences of that, have integrity. And in that case, I think he's consistent throughout the whole book. I agree. I don't think this is, I don't think this represents any sort of departure. I think unless it's a, it's a, um, a, a moment where father says to Ralph, you're on your own from this point on. And this is my final act of child raising. Mm-hmm. So we're done at 11 is what you're saying. Because <laughs> <laughs> I trust him now. Like he, he had an opportunity to shirk responsibility and he didn't take it. Like he, he stood up and were among the boys. I mean, brutally, like a, that's like abuse, child abuse, what happened to him here. So that's uh, what father did was, I, I, I see what father's doing, which is even though you received a beating for this, you did the right thing and I want to reward you for that. From now on, I trust you to take responsibility. When I say to myself, um, or not to myself, when I say to my kids, you rule, rule yourself or you will be ruled. Right, like what he's saying is, I see you ruling yourself, so I no longer feel like I have to be the one to do it for you. Right. Yeah. I. Um. And and I think there is, you know, there is something about it, one of the about the man defending his family and the honor of his son. Like, yeah, maybe he did something wrong, but as you said, it was child abuse, and there is, right. you know. It's there's this sort of chivalric code, right? Yeah, that's why I loved it because dad's, dad's stepping in to protect his people. That's right, and that code has been here throughout the whole book, right? The code of communities standing up for each other and defending each other, and um, you know, we we get these these two final sort of escapades are people unjustly going beyond the bounds of what's appropriate. The teacher and then the guys with the gun in the car. Um, both these two things that happen to them or people going beyond the bounds of that code and then you know, other people standing it, you know, trying to sort of step in and where it's appropriate. But you need to get going, Adam. So um, you've got, you know, think, real life things that, that you need to attend to. Uh, <laughs> particularly days and days of celebrating. <laughs> I'm not going to be beating anybody up today, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, one never knows. It's only like, you know. Well, one has to be ready. I'm not right. saying that. Exactly. At the ready. <laughs> Uh, okay, so what are your final thoughts on this? I'm gonna, you know, check in with you here for some final thoughts, and then you can take off. And of course, we will answer people's questions uh, next week. But um, you got, you know, what do you have? You have like a minute here or something? Two minutes that you can, you can. Yeah, give us yeah. A final thought? Well, I just, I, I really love this book. I, I think it's it's worth reading and discussing. And and as we've talked about it over the last few sessions, I really think the thing that stands out to me is how um, life affirming the story is, huh. and the the positive. Uh, evaluation that the author gives to the elements of his childhood that he, that he has collected and is relating is really edifying to think about. And the way he puts them in the context of a relationship with his father in which he learned uh, elements of character that he thinks are really important. Um, it's, it's instructive without being pedantic or didactic and it's encouraging and inspiring and uh, I just, I think for that reason, it's, uh, it's worthwhile. It's good for the soul, I think, to, um, to hear a story told the way Ralph Moody tells it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, thinking about it, um, his afterwards sort of came up two or three sessions ago, episodes ago. And I've been thinking about the story with respect to his, his very specific, explicit goals in writing it. 
And, um, and while I, you know, I, I certainly, it was 1950, that's been a lot of years ago. There are certain things about those goals that I would probably rephrase and, and, and share in this particular uh, era. I actually think the story might be as valuable without those things. Hmm. That the story right. that he's told has its, uh, has its value as a reminiscence in and of itself that is edifying to the soul, completely apart from the purposes to which the author wanted to put it. And that's interesting for me to say, because I'm usually very, very um, uh, <laughs> reticent to, to go in that direction. But yeah, I think yeah. he does a really nice job of, of painting uh, a childhood fondly remembered in an inspiring way. And I would just recommend this book to everyone. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of value in... <laughs> One of the things that I guess makes a book really great is when you can you can see that the author has achieved what they're doing, but they've also crafted something that you can say, you know, sometimes there is value beyond what they meant to do. You know, sometimes, you know, we can look at it in both ways. And that's maybe the mark of really great books. Mm. Maybe mm-hmm. that's one of the defining characteristics that an author accomplishes what they set out to, to do, but they also were artistically um, gifted enough to craft something that maybe did take a step beyond. Maybe it... It was uh, transcended their, uh, you know, their their uh, their goals. You know. Yeah. I, just to just to to step back from that just a second though, David, because I can't leave without make, at least making some controversy. I would say that <laughs> and then, it's and not then drop the mic and walk away. Yeah, and then drop the mic and walk away. Right. There's graduation stuff going on. I would say that it's not that Ralph Moody meant one thing, and we can use his book for two things. Right. Okay. I would say yeah. that Ralph Moody meant two things, and the second thing is not as important as the first. I would mm. say that he's telling a great story about his childhood that's edifying and encouraging, and he wants to use it to recreate the youth of the 1950s. I guess what I was trying to say is that first goal and purpose is kind of timeless and universal, mm-hmm. yeah, even yeah, yeah. without the addition of that second goal. That's kind of the way I would put it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, now you have to leave. So <laughs> I love having the last word. It's the best. Well, you know, technically, because now we get to respond to you without you being here. That's true. I, I guess we're even. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk next week. I'm sure the questions will come up about what, what you just said. Um, and if not, I'll come up with something. But uh, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time away from your, uh, from your celebration and uh, give our best to your daughter. And, and of course, just thank you for joining us for these episodes. It's been, it's been fun, as always, discussing books with you. And we will... Uh, without a doubt, have you back soon if you're up for it. Thank you, guys. David, Heidi, it's been fun. I will see you soon. Thanks, Adam. All right. right. Sounds good. Talk to you next week. All right. Heidi, uh, let's get some final thoughts from you on this book and then we will, uh, we'll, you know, stop recording until, until next week when we answer people's questions. But what do you, where, where are you on this book? What's your final thoughts? Well, I have really enjoyed reading this book in a very different way. I've been thinking a lot this week about, um, you and Adam and how uh, reading it as fathers and sons. And in some ways I feel a little bit on the outside of this book and I'm so drawn to mother Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that I, and, and she was the character that stood out to me the most at the end of this novel. I loved how, I loved how, 
he, I, I feel like he always spoke very respectfully about his mother throughout the whole book. Um, and we had a long conversation in the first couple of episodes about her and how she was kind of holding Ralph back from stepping into uh, the, the, you know, the cowboy that was his destiny to become and her fear and um, her grief and, and all the things she was going through and how those things kind of manifested and how uh, Ralph portrays her far more realistic then he portrays his idealized father. We see her flaws in a way that we really don't hardly ever see flaws. Um, and, but at the end here, he just paints her with such um, tenderness and love and her, her great strength throughout this, how you see the, her emotions, but she, you know, she doesn't give in to them. She, She's, she has to be the, the point around which the family converges and she knows that and she steps into that. And so I, I think I was, I just loved the way that he portrayed his mom here mm. at the end. Mm. And do you see that as worthy of imitation? Mm. You know, I felt the, the uh, need to, to um, talk about her a little more. And my hope yeah. is that my, my assumption is that that she will come up a little bit more in the uh, Q and A in the Q and A yeah. um, next week? So you know, I, at least you know one of us has to bring her up again for us to talk uh-huh. about. I, and I have felt it's hard to get it. You know, in a book that's so cent- the central relationships are are um, the the boy and the father, and then to some degree, right. how, you know, it, it, we did talk. As you said, we did talk about her early on, but I have kind of felt the lacking of of talking about her in the last couple of weeks. But hopefully, we'll we'll do that next week. But I think you're right that there is. Um, I like that you mentioned worth something worthy of imitating there. Um, well, and but- it is an overtly masculine book, purposefully so. This is the training of a young man, and 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 as young men come of age, mother is still their moms are still an anchor. But it is not the same kind of training anymore. And that's appropriate and that's righteous and good. So to see, but to see her kind of honored and held up there at the end and um, it was just really lovely. And yeah. I, yeah. I, I think it reflects a sort of, there's a definitely a difference, you know, between the father, I mean, between a mother and a son. In some ways it deepens, right? Like when you're, yeah. when you're young, you go through these cycles with mom, at least this is my experience and what I've seen and then in what, uh, you know, I've experienced myself. You, when you're young, uh, uh, you know what? This is actually we need to talk about this when we talk about um, the Odyssey in a couple of weeks, particularly with the telemachy. Yes, because this really plays out in the yes. Odyssey and in Gre- and it's particularly in how this worked out in Greek culture generally. But early on, mothers have this very nurturing um, and training sort of relationship, and you know, it's such a beautiful thing and all that. But then, as boys get older, they distance themselves a little bit from their mother, and you know, you're start trying to you start trying to become a man and part of that is figuring out how, you know you don't want to be nurtured by your mom right um right. you kind of want to escape that and that's sort of right but it's hard for the mom and then as you get older in some ways i think a lot of young men probably circle back to their moms and the relationship deepens in a different way it begins to sort of you know i look at i'm trying to i'm trying to think of what the word you just used you know they're they're in a sense by the end of it he, he and his mom are partners you know they're the partners at the end yes and i look at my relationship with my mom now and since i had kids and got you know got deeper you know into being you know especially when i got married i think my relationship with my mom deepened and i was i she an anchor i think that's the word you used uh-huh. a mom is an anchor in a different way when you're young 
it's the anchor that sort of like, huh. I don't know, she literally keeps you alive, right? <laughs> she gives you, right. she nurtures you and give, teaches you and all these different things. And I look at my own family where my boys are really young. And, you know, earlier on, they re- my kids all really work cling to mom. And then as they get a little older, they turn three and four. You know, like Lucas right now, if you ask him who's favorite person, he's going to say me. But that's because I right. kind of, I come home from work and we wrestle and we play. And you know, he's at that point in his life when he just says that. And in a couple of years, you know, the boys, like the older boys kind of look at us. You don't, they don't think about it that way. Like there's one person who's their favorite person. Um, but the dynamic is constantly shifting in, in a home and in the relationship between children mm-hmm. and parents. And the anchor, the, the nature of that anchoring evolves over time. And right. I think, and so once I got into my 20s and got married and started having kids, my mom became, um, she was a teacher and an anchor in a way that was different. Like I, she was the person that I turned to when I needed to figure something out or I needed some kind of advice about the kids or Bethany or right. cooking or doing something around the house or I needed to learn something, you know, maybe it was, you know, and my dad becomes, well, my dad and I work together. So that's, I guess, kind of a different thing. But she, beca- <laughs> you know, she becomes, she, in some ways, I turn, I, it returns back. It's a more mature anchoring, but in some ways, I think it circles back to when, what it was like when, when I was little. Um, right. You know, it, we, you, re, you return to that. You don't, it, in a, in a, different sort of way i'm trying to in a in a healthy kind of individuated way right the reason why boys need to separate from mom it seems having never been a boy but in being a mom with a almost 13 year old son who's definitely in this yeah that's like it's my mom wants me to like this so i'm gonna (laughs) like this instead right that's normal there's a separation yeah and it's yes and it's and it's specific to mom and it's yeah. a healthy transition, but it is grief to a mother. Like there's yeah. no other way for a mom to feel about that other than sad, even though even when she knows it's a healthy thing. And yeah, even when you look at the the, the son and you say this is an honorable thing or this is an honorable yes. young man, and I feel like we maybe mean his dad have done a good job or whatever the situation is, it's still sad. Right, because it's a change and it is a separation. But there's, you know, if you don't make that separation, it's actually really, really bad for the rest of your life, right? So because (laughs) a mother and a daughter and a father and a son, like I can remain best friends with Lucy throughout her whole life and there's no kind of conflict of loyalties there. But if I am the number one woman in my son's life forever... He's, <laughs> yeah. that's actually really dangerous and bad. And so he has to separate from me. And, and vice versa too, right? Yes, like yes. The son, what, what, what the son is to you is, can be problematic as well. Right. And it, I mean, particularly in a pioneer culture as what's happening with mother. So there's, there's this, like in a way the mom is mother in this book kind of haunts the whole book. And I don't mean that in a spooky sense. I mean, and like she is, she again is the anchor, but he has to separate from her. And at the end, they become, like you said, partners. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. But she still is the one that has to give him permission to do that. Yeah. Right? He, she has to nod at him across the table for him in order to, res- to take that place. And, and you- I just thought that was a lovely image. And and you get the sense that now that she's nodded, it's not going to be a relationship where, I mean, I, we'll have to read further books, right? But but right. you get the sense that to some degree anyway, it's not going to be the kind of thing where she has to nod to give him permission to do things. 
Mm-hmm. She has now given yes. him permission to be the man. And, yes, it's like a sacramental moment here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For both it's, of them. It's sort of like the official nod. <laughs> yes. And it's a healthy thing. Like that's because she could, like I said, this could have gone so many other ways. She could be like, no, you're still my little boy. It's really important that you stay a little boy right now because I just lost your dad and I need you to not try new things and not be dangerous and not take risks. That would, yeah. everything in me would be that. I would want that. I'd be like, okay, I need to keep you a little boy because otherwise if you become a man, then I might lose you. But yeah. no, she's yeah. nodding to him across the table take your place as a man of this home and 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 we're all going to get through this together but she's not abdicating responsibility either she's just made the meal she's just told everybody what to do yeah so yeah. It's, I just, like your point about, about Penelope and Odysseus, they, because Penelope and and Telemachus, they go through exactly the same thing in the Telemachy, exactly the same thing. Although it's interesting that in many ways, well, we'll get to this, but Telemachus is, you know, his is all delayed. He's on this delayed, yes, this delayed trajectory because of what not having Odysseus around meant. Right. Um, And we'll talk about about that this summer. Yeah. I'm just going to be so great. I can't wait. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's put that off then. Let's let's All go right. ahead and finish this conversation. Uh, like I said, next week we'll answer your questions. So well, we'll post this. Well, Heidi's going to post the thread, and uh, you can ask your questions there. And then you can also get in touch with us on, on Instagram. We're we are at Close Reads Pods there, and then also uh, Close Reads Podcasts at gmail.com if you want to email your questions. Uh, we are working our way through Macbeth Act Four. Uh, the Act Four conversation will be up soon. Um, and uh, the Act 3 conversation is now up. So if you're working your way through Macbeth with us, check that out. Daily Poem is, of course, well, daily. Make sure you subscribe to that. <laughs> uh, and we've got lots of other good content um, uh, just on this Close Reads podcast network, but also throughout this Cersei podcast. Uh, we've got Brian Phillips has been putting some great content up on the Commons. So if you're interested in conversations about leadership, um, whether you're a homeschooler or whether you're in school or whatever, whatever your job is, whatever your role is, his uh, interviews and conversations and then uh, his own contemplations on leadership and, and uh, teaching are, are really great. Um, oftentimes they're, they're you know, nice, uh, breezy and in length, not in content, but in length, eight, 10 minutes sometimes. So uh, lots of great content going on. Um, lots of great stuff on the blog and um, you know, just events and everything. So we are, we are locked and loaded and trying to provide as much as we can for you guys. Um, don't forget about the Patreon page. If you are up for supporting the show, we'd certainly appreciate that. We have a whole bunch of new Patreon gifts that we are going to be launching this summer. Graham is busily uh, conceptualizing and designing a bunch of new things. So I'm cool. just going to say that much. But if you are up for supporting the show, even at you know $2 a month, it goes a long way towards being able to get money to Logan and uh, for editing this. You know, Logan puts so many hours in every week to editing shows for us and um, the hosting of the shows and promoting them and all the different things that go into it. So, um, it, uh, you know, we're a nonprofit, so the Patreon goes a long way. It's not like it lines the coffers of this, the uh, Cersei payroll. It's really paying for, you know, all that extra stuff that's going on uh, to make the show David possible. and his bags so, of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so uh, any any support you can give there would be great. But even if you can just leave that starred review, leave us leave a comment on the on on whatever feeds you're subscribed to, that would go a long way. We really appreciate that. So, all right, with that, Heidi, thanks again, thanks so much for Heidi, for Adam, and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next week. We will answer your questions. And in the meantime, happy reading. Mm-hmm.